You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You can find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting, let leaders, let leaders, let me start that one again, Chris, forgive me. My phone's going crazy for some reason. Sorry. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is famed Indianapolis journalist Vic Reichert, who has the great distinction, especially among journalists, I should say, of also serving in the United States Marine Corps. Vic, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. I've known you a long time. I'm excited for this discussion. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Wish we could do this in person. Oh, absolutely. Thank you very much for your time. Um, the first question I wanted to ask you as we went back and forth is, has anyone ever spelled your last name correctly on the first pass? No. No, that's never happened. And thanks for noticing. My wife even, uh, you know, she almost didn't marry me because of the last name. <laughs> so but, so uh, your last name is Reichert, but it is spelled? Yeah, it's R-Y-C-K-A-E-R-T. It's the double vowels and the C-Ks that get people. <laughs> I tell people usually it's common spelling. but <laughs> It's spelled as it sounds? <laughs> yeah. Are yeah. you, is that... Russian, Polish, German? No, Belgian. You're like Belgian. Er, you're yeah. like Hercule Poirot. Yeah, Belgian. Van Damme. Oh, that's right, Jean Claude. <laughs> yeah. When did, Van you, when, did, when did your family come over to the United States? You know, my grandparents came over on a boat in the early 1900s. My my, and they they met in Chicago. Um, I guess they're from different parts of Belgium. I didn't know we were going into this. The the um. My grandmother came from one part and my grandfather from a different part. Like there was one side closer to the Dutch and one side closer to the French. And usually, I guess in Belgium, those two sides don't really hang out together much. No, the Walloons. It's called the, and the... Yeah, Walloons and I think the Flanders maybe. Correct. Flemish. Flemish, yeah. So, and, I, and if you ask me who's who, I can't remember. I don't know. <laughs> one of them was one, one of them was the other. And when they got here to America, they met and, you know, fell in love, had my mom. And a couple other kids, three other kids. And lo and behold, I just, here I am. 
Well, I just had wondered if they had fled the uh, fled Belgium either because of the German invasion of 1914 or the German invasion of 1940. Yeah. So the story is my grandfather was too young for the first world war and too old for the second. So he got out, <laughs> he, got, he got out of the country uh, before the, like, I want to, you know, I, before, or during the first world war, you know, he was in the, He's born in the early 1900s, so it was probably right after the First World War. And then um, my grandmother came over with her parents at the same time. My grandfather, the story is that he kind of um, was not necessarily a legal immigrant. <laughs> he, uh, he came over on a boat and he had some funny stories about riding the boat. The first time he ever saw a black person was on that boat to America. Ever? Yeah, first time he ever saw a black person was on that boat, So, which was interesting. Having grown up in Chicago, he was a janitor. And... Um, so, you know, we lived in a, in on an apartment complex on Juneway Terrace, which is right next to Evanston in uh, a Chicago suburb. And but it wasn't Evanston. Um, and uh, so, you know, my earliest memories are in this big apartment complex where my grandfather was the janitor. And it was a, it was a black neighborhood. We were the only white family um, in the whole city, you know, in the whole well, is, there was, which is typical of immigrants, thing. typical of immigrants. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, and my grandfather was a janitor. So, you know, we got, whenever there was an empty unit, we had to go clean it and he would do maintenance all the time. And, you know, I remember one time I was a kid, you, you know how you would, uh, you could like hold onto a door and ride it like a carnival ride. Sure. I was doing that. And I, my grandfather got really mad at me <laughs> for doing that. <laughs> Did your, did, do you remember your grandfather speaking a language other than English? Oh, yeah. They, they spoke Belgian all the time. As a matter of fact, it, it was a really, like, when I was a kid, there was a real Belgian community. There was a, a bar out there that all the Belgians would hang out at, and there was, they would have picnics. Um, and I remember going to picnics, and archery was a big deal. My grandfather had a bow, and they would use these arrows that had like big plug plugs on the end and they would uh shoot these arrows into the targets were um these feathers that were nailed on a strip of spikes they had a they were kind of a feathers on a metal stick a metal post and there'd be different sizes of them and there was a little kind of plug thing a plastic piece with a hole that they would actually take a hammer and a pipe and nail it onto a like pound it onto a spike and you had to use these arrows that had kind of a big quarter size plug on the end of them to knock the feather off of the spike, the row of spikes. And the different size of the feathers was how much money they were worth. So if you knocked off a, a feather, you got money for that. So that was like the big deal at the Belgian picnics. That did, food, lots of hot did, dogs. <laughs> did you upgrade your weaponry when you uh, joined the Marine Corps? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, actually they never, I was never old enough. And by the time I did get old enough, the uh, picnics had kind of faded away. All the all the Belgians who did that sort of thing got too old, um, but yeah. By the time I mean, we were never a big gun household, and in the city of Chicago, it was always illegal to have a gun. So I didn't. The first time I really shot was in the Marine Corps. You grew up in Chicago, or you grew up in Evanston? No, we were right next to Evanston in Chicago, and and I didn't grow up there. We that was one of many houses we lived in growing up. I, we we moved around a lot. Did you 
do you have like a first Chicago memory? I mean, Chicago was making plenty of news in the late 60s, early 70s. You know, sure. I, I, I mean, so Chicago was kind of where I grew up. You're talking my earliest memories. I remember, <laughs> remember chasing a squirrel around this, um, the um, a playground that was a couple blocks from our, our apartment. And actually it was me and a bunch of kids were chasing the squirrel. And I was the lucky one who caught it and it turned around and bit me. So I had, and I was bitten by a squirrel when I was maybe five years old. Do you, are uh, you old enough to remember the building of the Sears tower? No. I mean, if it happened, I don't remember it. You remember the 85 bears though. Well, yeah, I was like, I was like, I want to say I was in the seven, I was 17, 18 when that happened. Okay. So you were so, roughly, we're roughly the same age. Yeah. Then. So you lived that close to Evanston but you didn't go to nerd Western like Francesca no. Brady, John Murray, Amos Brown, several other distinguished uh, former Indianapolis journalists. Why Illinois and not Northwestern? So, so I didn't have your traditional path to college. Um, and I wasn't the best student in high school. So I went, which is why I joined the Marines, right? <laughs> so, so, you know, I wasn't a great student. Um, but I went through the Marines and it took me a couple years in the Marine Corps to realize what I really wanted to do was go to college. <laughs> but I'm in the Marines and I wanted to do that, you know, full bore. Because, um, you know, I, enlisting was a big deal. No one in my family had, I mean, my uncle had served in the army in Korea, but no one else. I mean, there was me and my brother and um, there had been, we didn't have a big military history, right? My uncle wasn't real. He's close, but we'd see him on Christmas and what have you. It wasn't sure. like he was a, a huge role model or anything. And, and uh, again, my grandfather didn't serve either. So for me, you know, it was kind of a, a high, it was kind of a business decision for me. I, and, and patriotic. I wanted to, to do something. I wanted to do something for the country. But, you know, I felt like my grades suck. I'm not ready to go to do school now. Let me see what it's like. Let me grow up. Let me go in the Marines and see if I could do it. And when I thought about what service to join, it, it, it was never really a thought to join any other. I, I, um, I wanted to do, if I was going to go in, I wanted to go all the way in, right? Not, not, you know, do something that wasn't seen as the hardest or the best. You know what I mean? And sure. the Marines had that sort of reputation, still do. Um, you know, having been in a while and seen how it all works, there are, there are great units in every service. There are great people in every service. But for me at the time, it was Marines, and I didn't even talk to the other recruiters. And um, So when you see public officials whether it's Greg Ballard or Todd Young or, or others who constantly, and I think smartly remind voters, remind the public that they served in the Marine Corps. Do you, as, as a journalist, but also a, a Marine, do you go, well, that's what I'd do if I were them. Like there's a special pride. Of course. I mean, yes, they need to. Of course, it is kind of funny to hear Todd Young all the time with his, as a Marine, I would. Which he jokes about. I mean, he makes yeah. fun of himself. Yeah, yeah, it is very funny. And, I, and you know, I, 
I think we all respect people who, who serve. We respect the service. And, and as, a, as an American, right, we, we understand that these are people who could be making money in other fields, but decide to give up a piece of, you know, some of their time uh, to, a, to do something they believe in, something that is a, a service to everybody. So, yes, I, I respect politicians who have some sort of service. Don't you? Well, considering my mother and my father were both in the Marine Corps, uh, it was drilled into my head that it uh, was the was the right decision to make. And I ended up not joining the Marines because I couldn't get in. There was like a year delay mm. because they back they back time it from your AIT, right? So you're going to go to this school. So then you have to go to basic at this time. And uh, we're recording this in January. And I was going through basic 34 years ago today. And... Uh, it was the best decision I ever made. I made it for the exact same reasons that you did. Although if you go above and below my generation, there are 15 members of my family who've served, including my son, Joshua, who did two tours in Afghanistan and my niece, Katie, who did a tour in Afghanistan. And there's multiple Marines and it's just a wonderful feeling when we all get together because even though, you know, my mother, uh, called me a certain word uh, that denotes cowardice uh, when I told her I was joining the army and not the Marines. Uh, there is a, there is a special pride. And I remember one time Greg Ballard is 2011. So he's running for reelection. And there was a little bit of debate about the mayoral race. I was talking to a friend of mine and, and this person kind of made a joke, like, did you know, Greg Ballard was in the Marines? And I just looked at him and said, and you served in, and there was no answer because there is something different about it. And, you know, I, I respect your service so much. And I don't really know that I've met another journalist who's been in the military, although I'm sure Bill Benner, I know was in the army, uh, Jay Hermosinski, who used to work for channel eight, he went to West point, but does hmm. you get a sense that that separated you from your peers in some way? Well, sure. I mean, one, you know, I know more about firearms than most journalists, right? Uh, and <laughs> sure, you know, I know the difference between a shotgun and a rifle, right? I mean, which some journalists, if you go on YouTube, you'll see those videos of journalists making dumb mistakes. And yeah, I think it does. I think, you know, it sort of labels me as kind of the military expert in any newsroom I've been in. Um, and boy, I, I have one thing before I go too far. I'm I'm certain that your parents, you were a big disappointment to your parents having joined the army. <laughs> <laughs> you have, uh, you have not buried the lead. I was an extreme yeah. disappointment. Uh, anyway. And, and something that they never, it's something they never let me forget. Even though my brother, not. my brother was in the army. My other brother was in the national guard. Uh, my mother was the first female recruit in Indianapolis for like several years after World War II and um, it never left her. And as much as I hate to admit it, I think the United States Marine Corps brand is one of the absolute best in the world. And it produces just amazing leaders and amazing people. Obviously I'm referring to uh, Greg Ballard. Uh, but when I was in the army, I was actually a journalist because oh, I thought about that's what I wanted to do. So I went to Dinfos at Fort Ben Harrison. And I ended up having a, a have to do a bunch of writing at a television show at a public affairs shop. You, I imagine, did not have that experience in the Marine Corps. No, I uh, 
I fixed radios. I was a, a, a radio repairman, did electronics. I had an electronics course. I did some, you know, soldering. That was one of our classes. And, you know, basic electronics course, um, then learned how to fix Marine Corps radios. They were still using, um, well, we were onto the solid state stuff, but there were some tubes still, <laughs> at and, least. And, uh, and yeah. Nobody called you radar. Please tell me someone called you radar. No, you know what my nickname was? And this was what I, so, you know, my, my Marine Corps career was kind of two parts. I, I did uh, a year in, in school and then I went to Okinawa for a year. And then after Okinawa, I joined a uh, kind of a high-speed unit, a cousin mm -hmm. to recon. It's called Anglico, Air and Naval Gunfire Liaison Company. And that was where I jumped out of airplanes. I went through airborne school. Um, anyway, it, during that, at that unit, I got the nickname Psycho. Because <laughs> one of the guys said I looked like Norman Bates. So there it was. If you get a name in the military, man, it sticks. Doesn't matter if you like it or not. So I was psycho. I was did psycho you, to everybody in that unit. Did you and, and Colonel Ballard ever talk about, I mean, he was in the Marine Corps the whole time you were. I wonder if you intersected in some ways or came close. No, I got out in 1990. I was in 86 to 90. And I think we, I never crossed paths with him. Um, I was out before the Gulf War started, the first Gulf War. Um, so I no, um, but yes, we did talk about it. I covered his uh, his first campaign when he won uh, when he won the first time, beat Mayor Peterson, and really that was that was great. You remember it? <laughs> I think you remember it. <laughs> I, I, it was, how about a, how about I say I still can't believe it? Yeah, it was it was a hell of a win, and <laughs> you know he had no rights to even be on the ticket, right? If if Republicans would have thought they had a chance, there'd be no way Greg Baylor gets on the ticket. Which was a blessing for the city because Greg Ballard was a good mayor, a really good mayor. Well, in in the sense, the the one thing that gave him credibility was his service. I 100%. mean, hundred percent. I mean, I've told him this before. You know, when when you when you have no public safety experience, which is what Greg Ballard had, no public safety experience. But you say you're going to get tough on crime, and public safety's job one. You know, having the Globe and Anchor on your lapel just gives you a certain credibility that you wouldn't have quite frankly, if you were in the air force, I mean, who cares if the air force gets tough on crime, but if a Marine says I'm going to get tough on crime, then people are like, you know what, this guy probably will. It made a huge difference in just his persona and his credibility. I mean, you witnessed it. I don't want to jump ahead too much, but what do you think? No, hundred percent. I think the fact that he was a Marine gave him probably, I mean, gave him a, an edge, a boost. Certainly people cared about it. People listened to him and respected him and it, <laughs> you know, there were a lot of reasons he won. Uh, the Tea Party was just coming into its own. The, um, there, the, there were three things, as I recall, and sort of the, you know, what the hell happened after effects. And tell me if you think this is true, too. But I think it was the fact that taxes just went up after. And it wasn't really Peterson's fault. The State House did it. State House raised taxes. So everybody was starting to see, like, especially the Meridian Kessler folks, their property taxes skyrocketed at the time. Crime was out of control. They, we were seeing record homicides like we do now. Um, and then there was some real problems with ethics. And there were some high profile Democrats um, who were getting in trouble for things like the pea shake houses. And, and, and those are some illegal gambling operations in the city um, at the time. So 
these things, and also there was something with the um, with a community center where they turned a um, they turned like a preschool into a bar. Do you remember that? It's a three. It's three hundred East, is what you're talking about. Yeah, they turned a preschool. They took out a preschool or a, after a daycare and turned it into a tavern, a bar. And I don't and, remember that story exactly, but you also had the 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 raising of the local option income tax. Yeah, yeah, right. So that was tax. that was the thing Peterson supported too. But and the problem is that was pennies. The reason everybody was really mad was because their property taxes like doubled and tripled. And if it so if it was just the co the local option income tax, um, maybe Peterson survives it. If it was just crime. Maybe Peterson survives it. And if it was just this ethics thing, maybe Peterson survives it. But the fact you had all three, uh, at the same time, the Tea Party was kind of going nuts uh, and really coalescing and getting organized. Uh, and Ballard yeah, didn't have a much. record. I mean, the only, the only record Ballard had was 23 years as an officer in the Marines. He, yeah. didn't, ha he didn't have a vote that they could use against him. He did, they didn't have some sort of scandal they could use against him. And so, you know, I was there at slating when he won and I was working as comms director at state Republican party. And I remember probably within a few days, Matt Tully, Jennifer Wagner, and I sat down at the old, uh, Seattle's best coffee that used to be at the borders downtown. And was like, you know, oh my God, this poor guy's going to get just destroyed. And I thought he was going to lose. I thought he was going to get clocked until October. Then I thought, okay, this could be closer. And then I remember getting a phone call from now state senator kyle walker who said mm -hmm. this dude's gonna win and i'm like you cannot be serious like you cannot be serious and he goes <laughs> this guy is gonna win and then i was working channel eight that night with jim shello toby mcclamrock and a former mm -hmm. city county counselor susan williams and it was just it was shocking and, and if you weren't involved in politics in the early early part of this uh, century then you don't understand a what a what a good mayor bart peterson was because he was yeah yeah and you, and you just don't understand the monumental nature of of the of the defeat i remember telling michael connor i thought bart peterson was going to be mayor for 20 years and then michael connor was going to be mayor for 20 years like i just figured that's the way it was going to be um, did you cover that campaign in detail yes I, a matter of fact i wrote i when i started i i want to say i you know now my dates might be off but i wrote one of the first profiles and I was there on after he won. Uh, so it was during the interviews before the election when I was talking to him and getting a sense that, yeah, maybe this guy could do it. Like, I, cause I interviewed him, man, Robert, I hate, I, if somebody goes back and checks my clips now and my, my memory is foggy, I apologize. Okay. Cause I was not, I did not think I'd be talking about my coverage of the Ballard campaign <laughs> says this. So I'm not, so if I make a mistake and need to correct myself here, just remember I'm doing this from what is it? 20 year old memories. So, all right. So my, my recollection is I wrote a story about uh, Ballard when he was still a candidate and I was on the, I was tapped to help cover him. And I don't remember if I was the main reporter on him or someone else was, I, I think I was, I think I was covering his campaign. And I think the reason they put me on it is because they thought he was going to lose like everybody did. Uh, and they had, I, I want to say it was Mary Beth or Tully or somebody was on Peterson, right? Mary Bigger. Beth wrote, Mary both, Mary Beth Schneider wrote the very 
strong, very good profile piece of him right before the election that I remember. Okay. Okay. So I, I did smaller stories on him and I know I was there the either the day one or the day after he won when he, it might've been the night he won when he went to the uh, FOP and addressed all the cops and they were just cheering him. They were so happy because at the time there were some pretty tense negotiations with the police department and uh, the police strongly endorsed Greg Ballard at the time. And he was there. It was, you know, it was like the return of the, of the local (laughs) hero. He was just, they just loved him. And he was talking to the crowd and, and I remember interviewing him there or listening to him and getting just a minute or two with him. And I don't think I was with him long enough to even talk about the Marines. Cause you know, by this time, everybody wanted a piece of him, sure. but, and then I, I, there was a story I did sometime before that. And maybe, you know, I think I was interviewing Peterson about crime and there was a, a story I was doing just crime was out of control. And I interviewed, I, I think it was Charles Harrison Reverend Charles Harrison, before he kind of had the profile he has today. So he was just starting to, to be a, a voice in the community at the time. So he wasn't one that was, you know, sort of worn out yet, right? So he was right. kind of a new voice on, on these sort of public safety matters. And I remember talking to Peterson about, um, about something Charles Harrison had told me. And Peterson got really sort of shitty about, oh, can we say shitty on this podcast? Sorry, Chris. That's okay. (laughs) So Peterson got shitty about it. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was, it was clear. He was not a fan of anything Charles Harrison was doing. And, uh, and it was after that interview with, with Mayor Peterson that I thought, man, Ballard has a good chance of winning this. And, and then it was that, and then it was that I saw you know, you would drive around like the north side neighborhoods or the east side neighborhoods. And, and, and I'm not talking about like the ones where the crime happens, the ones where middle class folks live. Sure. And there were so many Ballard signs, a lot enough. of Ballard signs. And I didn't see me- as many Peterson signs. So it was, it, it, there was just a feeling that, there, that if you were paying attention, and frankly, a lot of people in the media were not. But if you were paying attention, you thought that Ballard might do this. But even, you know what, even on election night, I thought there's no way, right? I thought there's no way he's really going to do it. And then he did it. And I was like, well, good for him. Right. But on the other hand, too, Peterson was a good mayor. So and we didn't know what Greg Ballard was going to be. He turned out to be pretty good. We've jumped ahead a little bit and we're going to go back, but I just want to ask one last question about Ballard. I mean, and I know the answer, I know the answer is no, but I'm going to mm-hmm. ask the question anyway. Was there any part of you who said, look, man, and this, this guy's a, 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 a Marine brother. I just can't roast him like that. I have to show some sense of camaraderie while still doing my job. Yeah, no. <laughs> absolutely not because at first off i was enlisted he was an officer we don't like officers right <laughs> so 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 and, and but, i didn't mean and i didn't mean like diminish your ethics i guess i would say i used to always say if i was ever a cop i'd never give a ticket to an east-sider like i just couldn't bring myself yeah. to do it is, is Look, that something that even in a little recess of your mind is like you know this guy serves so i'm gonna if i'm gonna do a story about government and spending and not corruption but you know what i mean ethics 
this is a guy I believe has the highest ethical standards and it's going to creep into my story somehow and I have to fight it. Was I, was I aware that I might have this bias? Yes, I was aware that I might have a bias that I, that I did respect him for being a Marine and for being a brother, right. In the having served, but you know what, that's a lot of people. There are a lot of veterans who work in politics and work in government. And I have that same feeling for a lot of them, but at the end of the day, you have to be a reporter too. You can't look, I, I like a lot of people I cover, right? Personally, I, mm-hmm. I would like them. And maybe if I wasn't a reporter, we could be friends. We could hang out, we grab a beer, we would, you know, our kids could play together, whatever. But but that doesn't mean that as a reporter you you have the luxury of being friends with them, right? You have to you have to maintain a distance. And I always try to do that. And you also look what I did for Ballard and for everybody is if I had something on you, if I had a story you were not going to like, you knew it, you knew it before it happened. And I would, I would come straight at you and say, this is the story I'm doing. And I never, I never played like that game where I, I wouldn't be up front and sandbag and hide, you know, if I was going for something and you were the target of that, you would know it by the time our interview was done, right? Because I would say, okay, here's what I got. What's your response? Right? Just like I did with Peterson, right? If I, I, I had some, obviously Reverend Harrison said something that Mayor Peterson didn't like, something critical, and I hit him with it. It wasn't like he was going to read about it in the paper without knowing it was coming. And, and I did the same for Greg Ballard. And there were times, boy, he messed up. There were some big, big mistakes under his administration. And I, you have to go no further than Bassard to, to know the problems and, and the way that he stood behind Frank Straub when, you know, everybody was clamoring for, you know, what's going on with public safety. And people have to wonder if maybe he was too loyal. We have a strict no Frank Straub um, code here at the Leaders and Legends podcast. Uh, you know, the Bassard was a yeah. terrible day. It was an absolutely terrible day for sure. Um, we skipped ahead a little bit. I want to ask you, cause I want to get back to your time at the star, obviously, cause you had, you, you broke some mm-hmm. amazing stories and worked on some wonderful ones. And I can tell you, I don't know how many times you interviewed me 50, 60. I'm not even sure, but every I, once in a while, I don't know. <laughs> I'd get a note from Vic, an email or a text who says, you need to call me. And I went, all right, this isn't going to be fun. And I appreciated the fact that I was getting the heads up. I just remember, you know, as close as Matt Tully and I were, uh, and we were very close for a long time. And then, you know, he kind of, when he got sick, I hardly ever saw him uh, rest his soul, but he would, he would call me and I'd answer the phone. I go, Hey, what's up? And he goes, I need to talk to you on the record. That was the first words out of his mouth. And I'm like, okay, this is Matt Tully. Indianapolis star, Robert Vane, and whoever I was representing. I really appreciated that. It was so upfront. And you did the same thing. Like, I need to talk to you. And I went, this, this isn't him saying, hey, man, I'm writing the story. I need a quote. That was on a kind of one level. But when you would reach out to me and you would be like very, not forceful, but upfront and, and always professional, but like uber professional, like, okay, the foundation of this phone call is something you're not going to like, but I'm calling you because you work for Ballard or whomever. I think all of us in the PR world or government uh, appreciated that, appreciate that about you. 
Well, absolutely. And, and if I, if I did that and you, you texted me before that I did it at 11 PM, believe me, if I did that there, and I probably did, man, because there were things that broke. I was working nights. Um, a lot of the time when you were working for the, the mayor and if something happened that late, it was a big deal. And boy, I, I mean, I, I don't remember the specific times. And, and if you say 50, it was probably a hundred times that I called you. I don't know, but certainly you were somebody who was, you know, plugged in. And I knew if I, if I talked to you, uh, the mayor would hear it, right. The question sure. would get to the mayor. So it wasn't, and look, I, we have these relationships that we build with people, um, on a beat and guys like me and Tully, and good reporters who, who build a reputation on being good reporters, we don't abuse that, right? If I text you at 11 o'clock, by God, you should answer me because you're gonna want to, you're gonna want to know what's coming and you're gonna want to respond to whatever it is. Because it is probably ugly. It is something that, that is gonna embarrass uh, the mayor or is gonna be something, a tough question. Uh, and you're gonna appreciate the fact that we let you respond, right? That we came to you and you didn't have to read about it, or you didn't have to read, the mayor was unable to be reached for comment, something like that. So, I mean, yeah. I'd if, much if, rather be called. Yeah, and, and on, the, on the, you know, same for you, right? We knew, we knew that if we called you, you would call back, right? We knew that there would not be a reason, you wouldn't be the kind of person who would hide the ball. You would, you, the same way. If there was something screwed up in the city, you wouldn't like, hey, look, you, you do your job, but you wouldn't pretend it wasn't a problem, right? You would say, look, there's a problem. We know about the problem and we're working on it. One I, of the first things I learned when I became comms director at the Indiana Republican Party, Murray Clark was the chairman of the party. I was hired by Jennifer Hollowell, but Murray was the chairman. And I didn't know him that well when I was hired. So this is 2000, May of 2006. And... I knew him a little bit and we had a quick conversation like on my first or second day. And one of the very, very first things he said to me was, we do not deny the obvious. And that's always stuck with me. Like we just, we acknowledge the obvious. And I think that is a, uh, whether no matter what you're doing, especially in the PR world is, isn't a bad philosophy to live by when you're, when you're denying that anything was wrong. It's the famous uh, scene at the end of animal house, right? Kevin Bacon going all is well, please remain calm. And, and the city's falling around, around him. You are listening to leaders and legends, a podcast presented by veteran strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by girl scouts of central Indiana, Garmon construction leaders and legends, LLC, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast is journalist and Marine Corps veteran Vic Reichert. Vic, is there a Hoosier leader or legend you particularly admire? Um, let's see. You know, there are a lot. I would say there's a lot and, um, huh. Dick Luger. I would say, I would say Senator Luger would be one. He, uh, I, I respect that he, you know, he didn't play the partisan games we see. 
he um, he he was a, the type of person who, um, you know, had friends on all sides. And I, I never, you know, he he was at the end of his career as I was here. And I, I boy, if I interviewed him, it wasn't much, but I certainly always respected him and thought he was uh, he was one of the best. Another veteran of the United States Navy. Another veteran. Vic, Vic earned a Bachelor of Science in Journalism from the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana and got a Master's of Arts in Public Affairs reporting, University of Illinois, Springfield. Talk, please, a little bit about your career before you got to the Indianapolis Star. Yeah, so uh, the Marine Corps, where I fixed radios, jumped out of airplanes, did a lot of cool stuff blew stuff up, <laughs> shot stuff. <laughs> Always fun. Yeah. Our unit was forward air, forward air support, forward observers. So we were all cross-trained in that. So it was fun calling, you know, the A-10s and uh, calling naval gunfire onto targets. We, uh, if you remember Puerto Rico, there was an island on Puerto Rico, Viegas Island, and we would go there and blow that up. <laughs> the Navy would, for a long time, I mean, it was a big deal. If you Google Viegas Island and the Marines, and the Navy, um, the Navy used it as a as a uh, bombing range for years. So the people of Puerto Rico hated it, and they should have, because because these bombs were loud, and <laughs> and and it was a little village. I mean, and you know, we'd come in, we'd blow stuff up, we'd leave. But anyway, um, so so that was the Marines. Then I, I and I think I said earlier how two years in, I decided I wanted to go to college. But look, I didn't skate through the Marines because it was after I made that decision that I joined that high-speed unit, Anglico, sure. which means Air and Naval Gunfire Liaison Company. And, and that, you know, getting into that unit, you had to go through an in-dock, which is kind of like boot camp, only harder because they already had you. So in boot camp, there were a lot of eyeballs to make sure drill instructors didn't go too far. But uh, in Anglico, man, the in-dock, no one was watching that. And we, we did a lot of crazy stuff, a lot of, a lot of punishments, a lot of push-ups, And, uh, you know, I, I've always sort of been a little bit of a rebel and rebellion is not accepted in the Marine Corps. <laughs> so let me just say, I did a lot of push-ups, a whole lot of push-ups. In the Marine Corps. All right. So, <laughs> so my four years are done. I get out of Marines. I go to the university, uh, I get my journalism degree. I, and while I was in, while I was in school, I joined the reserves. And so for four years, I was in the 12th group. Uh, I went into the army after I got out of the Marines and served the rest of my time as a, as a national guardsman in Illinois in the 12th uh, special forces group. Now, let me be clear. I never went to special forces school. I was not a green beret, um, but I was attached to a special forces unit. Um, sure. So I'm not gonna, uh, there's a, a Republican politician now is getting, oh, Tom Cotton, getting some heat for claiming he was a ranger when he passed the ranger school, but never made it through, never was assigned to a ranger battalion, which is apparently a big deal, some people. Uh, to be clear, I'm not a Green Beret. I did not go through special forces school. <laughs> if I ever run for anything, don't use that against me. Uh, but, but yeah, I was on a, in the 12th group. Um, but it was at a time when uh, the military was really drawn down. And um, I just, you know, I was committed, but I, I, just didn't, I just didn't stay in. And after my time was up, I got out of the, of the reserves. Um, 
Then, you know, it was a four-year commitment after the Marine Corps. I did my four years in the reserves um, and then fully got out. Then I uh, got a scholarship to go get my master's degree. I did that. Um, and then after the master's degree, uh, which this was a, an interesting program. It was a year and a summer. So a full year program to get a master's degree. And it was intense sort of public affairs. So we covered government, state government in Illinois. Um, and part of it, half of, the, half of this, the year was spent covering the legislative session in Illinois. So I worked for the Alton Telegraph as an intern and I got A1 stories as an intern uh, covering things like abortion, which was a big deal. And it was a, there was a, one of the big debates at the time was um, parental notification of abortion where they were gonna, if a kid, a minor need an abortion, um, the parents would automatically get notified. That was something they were debating. And I think they eventually passed it. That's a rule in Indiana, I'm sure. But at the time it was kind of a, a controversy. So I wrote about that and I wrote about other things, whatever was happening in the state house at the time. And uh, so got my master's degree. Then I landed a job at a Chicago suburban newspaper called the Northwest Herald. It was a 30,000 circulation daily out of, and I covered the city of Algonquin. The Northwest Herald was in Crystal Lake. So these are suburban Chicago papers. It was the smallest paper in that covered these sort of the big city or the suburban news. And, you know, in the nineties, the mid to late nineties, I would go to like city hall village meetings or whatever. And there would be, it would be common that there would be me, a reporter from the daily Herald and a reporter from the Tribune all there. And sometimes there was a weekly too. the reporter from the weekly might be there too. So there'd be, there'd be, you know, three or four, there'd be several other reporters covering you know, a small town in suburban Chicago, all fighting for scoops. And I mean, it was a good training ground and a good time to be a reporter because I thrive on that kind of competition. I love, you know, having people competing with me for the same stuff because I always felt like I'm better than them. And, and I usually was. And, and so, so I think that was a real good training ground for being a reporter and learning how to, you know, how to work, sort, how, to, how to work a beat and how to meet people and how to, you know, get, gain the trust of people on your beat so that when something's happening, they'll just call you and tell you, hey, something's going on, you might want to pay attention to it. And, you know, those are lessons that I took with me throughout my career. When did you get to the Indianapolis Star? October of 1997. And I was there until December, December last year. What was your first beat slash experience at the star i i worked in the so back in the star in the 90s they had bureaus and i worked in the metro south bureau and covering johnson county shelby county at the time that was it it was the two suburbs uh, the two suburban counties and um i i started out covering development but it quickly morphed into like courts so because there were some big court cases at the time if you recall, there was um, right before I got hired, um, a Franklin College student was uh, kidnapped and murdered. Her name is Kelly Eckert. And um, then right after I got hired, they arrested the suspect who did it. His name is Michael Overstreet. And after I was here about a year, I ended up on the court beat and um, covered that death penalty trial. So I was there on that death penalty trial. And we had some crazy crimes, dude. 
there were some nutty crimes in Johnson County and Shelby County back in the day. Um, we had we had a woman named Diana Diana Lynn Fry, who um, oh this is horrible. She she videotaped herself having sex with her five year old son. It was a horrible horrible case, and I'm in court for this case. And at the very first hearing, her initial hearing, where the judge asks, you know, try really this hearing is just to explain the charges and um, explain like. See if, if the person has enough money for a lawyer. The the um the judge said, you know, you do you have a what's your income? She says, I'm on disability. And then he says, uh, why are you on disability? What's going on? She goes, and, and I'll remember this quote forever. I got a mind of a third grade. Basically, this woman was mentally retarded. She was she was slow. And it turned out that everything she did was at the uh, urging or of a boyfriend who was much older than her. And since he was never on camera, he was behind the camera. He ended up getting like eight years and she got like 20 some years in prison, which is really is, is horrible, horrible. I mean, look, what she did is inexcusable, inexcusable. But also it, it taught me that, you know, there's more to every story. There's more to everything. And even the worst people sometimes have a story that deserves to be told. When you got to the star, did you, did you bond with any of the older reporters? Cause by about the time you got there, you know, some of the folks who worked for the Polyams in the sixties, seventies and eighties were starting to retire. And there were some terrific reporters, obviously back then, whether it's Dick Cady, Richard Walton, I mean, even, you know, our friend Bill Benner, Robin Miller, but for your beat and for your, as a young journalist, was there one or two people who said, you know what, I, I need to spend more time around this, this man or woman because they know what they're doing. Yeah. I, and the number one who comes to mind is a, a reporter named Paul Bird, who I don't know if you ever knew. He, he, by the time you came on the scene, Paul um, had been sort of relegated to the South Bureau, but a, um, he was a longtime reporter. Uh, he passed away, oh, I want to say five years ago now. Um, but, but Paul Bird was an old guy um, who just had the best stories. And, you know, he would, he would roll into the office late, <laughs> later than everyone else. And he would get all the tips. He would get all the scoops. He, uh, he would, it, you never felt like he was working real hard. But he was, he was working his ass off. Um, but he, he was like a king of like, just knowing people. And he had, he had, you know, police chiefs and firefighters and just, you name it, they would call him and, um, and just bullshit with him. I mean, they would talk to him about stuff and he would, he would use this and, and get just incredible stories, things that no one knew about. And, he left the star. Um, oh, I, you know, he left the star long, you know, 10, 15 years ago, but I was still sort of earlier in my career, midway, maybe through my career. But he, even after he left, he would still call me and say, Hey Vic, uh, call this person. They have some stuff for you. So he would still like all the scoops that, that he would get. I kind of inherited. And I even inherited some of his sources. They, after he left, 
his, I would start getting calls from random people I didn't know who, who, would, who would be like, hey, Vic, I need to talk to you about this or that. So Paul Byrd, uh, he, and it's not just me. There were so many reporters he helped. Um, Michelle McNeil, who's one of the old timers, learned a lot from him. Poor Michelle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, poor Michelle. Uh, I mean, he, Dana, Dana Benbow learned a lot from him. She's I agreed to Amy, come on. She's agreed to come on the podcast. We're looking forward to talking to Dana. I'd love to talk to Michelle. I only reference poor Michelle because you called her an old timer. Oh, <laughs> old. I'm, you know, for what it's worth, I'm older than both of them. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, look, I, they, they both learned a lot from Paul too. And, and they will have Paul Bird stories. I, I have a favorite Paul Bird story that he told me that may or may not be true. He, he had, he had a real talent for telling a story. Problem was you couldn't tell for sure if these stories were hundred percent true. And my favorite from him that he told me is that, so Paul Bird was writer for the news, I believe in the, you know, and like he started in the sixties and he was on the cops beat. And this was a time when, you know, reporters could like actually walk into murder scenes, right? Walk into crime scenes and would be there with the cops while they were doing their thing. And that was acceptable at the time. But, you know, today, no, you don't get past the tape today. But then Paul Bird would routinely see the bodies, you know, be there with the cops. Um, so remember the big deal was Bobby Kennedy came to speak. Um, and this was that speech when Martin Luther King was assassinated. The huge, you know, we all know this one. It's legend in Indianapolis. Um, Paul Byrd told a story about how he, he knew one of like Bobby's, or, or he knew somebody with the state. One of his good sources was with the state and with the governor's office or something, or someone's office. It was Democrats at the time. It was somebody, he knew somebody who was, had access to Bobby Kennedy at the, at the time when, and was in the hotel and everything. And Paul Bird said, so he was there with this other person and that person kind of joined Kennedy's people and Paul Bird just followed him up to the hotel room. And now the Indiana people figured Paul was with, or some people figured Paul was with the other, with, with Kennedy's people and Kennedy's people thought he was with the state's people. So no one asked any questions. Paul Bird said he went up to the hotel room with Bobby Kennedy and all his people. And while he's in there, uh, you know, he's taking notes, just writing everything down that he could. And at one point, Bobby Kennedy comes out of the bathroom um, and just in a tizzy, he's nuts. He, he, he had peed on himself and had a, had a, a wet mark <laughs> on his pants. And then all, all of his people were around him with towels, fanning him. This is Paul Bird's story. People are fanning the wet spot off of Bobby Kennedy's pants. And that's the story. And by God, I want that story to be true, man, because <laughs> it's so great. We had Mike it, Riley, the uh, Indiana uh, campaign chairman, who's, who's now deceased, but we had Mike Riley on the podcast uh, talking about that campaign. I should have interviewed you first, Vic. I could have asked him if he was one of the aides there uh, with the towel. That would have been great. I wonder... I wonder what he'd have said. I, you know, my brain says there's no way that story is true, 
But my heart really wants it to be true, man, because <laughs> it's so great. It's so great. And Bird, Bird stuck with it, man. Bird was like, yep, that's what happened. You covered some pretty significant cases and and really have had, I would say, I don't know if it's the right way to say it, but maybe some heavy beats. Did did any of you, any part of you wanted to be, want to be Mark Allen or be Bill Benner or, or David Lindquist or, I mean, the list goes on and on, right? Like, let me cover something a little more light, a little more fun. Have, have, let me go to concerts and not crime scenes. Um, no, no, because I always felt like this was important work. Um, and sure. Do I love sports? Would I love doing that? Yes. Would I love to go to concerts? Yes, for sure. But I always felt like one, I was good at it, right? I was really good at, at telling these stories and, and finding them and, and getting, uh, you know, being a witness to these sometimes horrific crimes. And I felt like the work I did, while it wasn't glamorous, it wasn't going to get me invited to, you know, any fancy dinners or concerts or whatever. Uh, it was important. I was telling stories that needed to be told. And you're right, man. It, it's hard when, um, when you, you cover this stuff to leave it at the office. It, it becomes, uh, I mean, you know, Diana Lynn Fry was an example. I, here we are 23, 20, whatever it is years later. And I still remember that hearing. I, these are things that and one, one deputy prosecutor told me early on that it's hard to not have those images come back unbidden. And it is. You, you, um, when you cover this kind of horrible, you know, carnage, <laughs> when this becomes part of what you do, it's hard to have those images not come back unbidden. You once witnessed a, an execution federal yeah. execution uh, we had your former colleague tim swearens on the podcast he talked about witnessing the execution of ted bundy um, you person whose execution you witnessed wasn't quite the i hate to say celebrity but there's probably no other way to put it uh, what was that experience like for you talk a little bit about it please yeah so that was only if you know what what was it back in october was it Wesley Ira Perky, he was the second um, person to be executed in this latest round of executions under the Trump administration. And, it, you know, it, it was really surreal. Uh, you, you um, one, it was grueling. We were, you drove to Terre Haute. We were, as a media, there were me and maybe five or six other reporters. We were sequestered in a classroom that was on the prison grounds, but away from the prison. We, um, it, was, it was under COVID, so we all had to wear masks. Um, we had to social distance. Um, there, was, there was no food or water. They would bring out little snacks. Uh, and we were in that room for 12 hours, 12 hours. And, and I was expecting to get a hotel room but by about 1 a.m., they wouldn't let us leave. And I just canceled my room because I knew, I knew I wouldn't be needing it. We would be in this room all night. And what happened for him, this, uh, 
Mr. Perky had some, uh, there were some questions about his um, uh, dementia. I think he had, he had, there was some, a fight over whether or not he was fit to be executed, mentally fit. And the appeals went all night uh, before, you know, the time would just keep getting, getting moved. And the prison brought us through security early and they didn't want to let us go because we'd have to go through security again. And, and if the, you know, we'd have to go through the metal detectors and all that again. And if, if they would have let us go, they would have, it would have, it would have delayed the execution, but man, there were so many delays anyway. So, you know, what was worst about it was just being locked up in that room for hours. I want to say we were eight hours in the classroom and then about six hours in a van. They put it, they loaded us both in two vans and we had to sit in a van from, you know, I want to say two till about, I mean, maybe it was three till about 8 a.m. when they finally executed him. Um, so, so getting to the execution was the worst part of the execution which was horrible, by the way, because you're watching someone lose their life, but, and you're brought into a little room, it's about, man, it's, it's about the size of a dorm room. It's really small. And you have a big glass window, and you know, there's a, we were brought in, and once, they just, once it was happening, it happened fast. Um, the vans roll up to the, to the death house, um, we go in and there was one report, a couple of reporters, they, they didn't let us go to the restroom. Two reporters were like dying. They had to use a restroom. So one of them even missed the start of the execution because they were in the restroom. So, um, but we get in there and the curtains open pretty quickly within five minutes. And the, uh, the prison, probably the marshal, some the marshals there, there's someone with the prison there. We're never told who exactly they are, but it's a DOC official or not DOC, sorry. FOB, federal, F, federal prison, BOF, Bureau of, I don't know, whatever. It's a Bureau of Prisons, BOP, that's it. Federal Bureau of Prisons. So there's take a- Take your time, Maureen. Just yeah. Take, <laughs> all right, so, all right, I will. Maybe I need some water, actually. <laughs> yeah, there's a Bureau of Prisons official. He reads, um, he reads something. Uh, Mr. Perky is, is tied up in his-, in his um, you know, on his gurney with his arms out. And uh, he says his final words. Um, they put him, they move the, the um, gurney down or the, the board down. And then I can't, they read something else or at some point the execution begins. Um, and, you know, at that point, my brain went to just reporter mode where all you're doing is taking notes because I'm a witness to this, this news event, this, you know, the, uh, this is the ultimate punishment that our state does. And I am here on behalf of everybody to witness this. So by God, I'm going to do a good job as a witness to this. And this is how our taxpayer money is being spent. And we all deserve to know what happens here. And, and that was my mindset. So once all that began, once I was in that room, I was a reporter and I didn't really think about, you know, what exactly is happening at that moment. Right. You don't think I'm, I'm watching a man lose his life. Right. You just think, you know, what are they doing? What am I seeing? How's his breathing? Are his eyes fluttering? And they were, you know, everything you notice, you write it down. There was a mark on his hand. I remember that writing the 
the blue mark on his hand and and you know he uh there there were I don't remember exactly what it was but I remember when he took his last breath and they it, it seemed like his chest stopped moving up and down and then you know somebody from the prison uh started talking in and said the time of death and then the curtains closed your view personal view on the death penalty is is not of it's not of our business here on the leaders and legends podcast but did actually witnessing it influence your thinking on it one way or the other you can reveal your position or not but just actually being there did that make a difference yeah a little um you know what it's barbaric without a doubt but do some people deserve it probably and this is what the law is you know i was never i would never say i'm particularly anti or pro death penalty but what i am is a reporter and i i will tell you this right one thing that is clear to me the death penalty costs a lot of money dude i i covered a lot of cases before i witnessed one in indiana i've covered several in indiana although indiana doesn't let media witness the actual executions so but i i have been in in the uh in michigan city in their room and it's it's a lot different in indiana first of all indiana gives a little more access than the federal than the federal prison system does in indiana i was able to interview the condemned before they were put to death um on a couple of occasions but the federal bureau didn't tell it didn't give us any access to the inmates um so in some ways even though we couldn't witness the execution indiana uh, was better at, you know, public, uh, public access and in letting, uh, you know, and letting people know what's going on. But anyway, so when I was writing about the death penalty in Indiana, uh, um, it became clear that, man, this is expensive. And the cost, I don't remember what it is, but the cost of putting somebody to death through the prison, through the court system is so much more expensive than life without parole and any of the other prisoning sentence sentence options that might exist and it's because of the appeals and because of the higher legal fees and because of the experts that all have to be brought in and because these these cases are so are so you know involved there's and, and investigated in so many different ways um and so much money and resource uh have to be spent to try each case. And then by the time they do the executions, there's so many more like people that have to be there for this federal one. There were dozens of, you know, armed security guards or armed state police and federal prison officers all around the prison guards. And they did that for every execution. There were, I mean, the overtime had to be just immense for these federal prison executions that we had. So, and I don't think people understand that. I think people think um, the death penalty costs less because we're not paying to, to keep them alive. We're not paying for their, for their food and their rooms and their college or whatever else, their TVs. But it's just not true. It costs so much more to execute somebody. So that's, that's one thing I would say that is an opinion I've held, right? Are there people who deserve deserve? to die? Yes, there are criminals who deserve to die. Should the state be in the business of killing 
its citizens? I don't know. I don't know. I remember asking the question of Tim Swearens when he witnessed the execution of Ted Bundy. And, and I remember this, but I forgot it. Actually, when I asked him the question, Bundy was executed via the electric chair. Oh, yeah. That would be a whole nother level. Let me ask you about two other stories real quickly before we get to the five questions. Hovey Street. Yeah. Covered that. Uh, talk for just a minute about what that scene was like and what it was like to, to cover such a, a horrible tragedy, much like the one that just happened in Indianapolis uh, earlier in, or I should say in late January where that young man killed his entire family, but go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, let's see, January 14, 2008. And a two mothers and two babies were found shot to death in a little house on Hovey Street. Um, it, was, it was a horrible crime. And it happened kind of on the heels of another horrible crime um, where seven people were killed on Hamilton Avenue, which was also one I covered. Um, but Ho Hovey Street, man, this, this, this crime, the fact that there were, these babies were so little, 23 months uh, was one and the other, God, I think was even younger. Um, Look at my at my story here. Five months, five months old and 23 months old. And the both mothers were 24 years old. And the the gunman just shot them all brutally and left them in this room, in this house. And the police get there the next day. And this is a crime that has the whole city just shocked. Because Indianapolis has seen a lot of violence. We were it was at a time when we were experiencing record homicides. But man, nothing like this. You just don't kill babies, right? Mothers and babies. And Frank Anderson was sheriff at the time. And it was at that time after, uh, after um, the merger, after IMP, IPD and the sheriff's department merged and formed IMPD, but before Greg Ballard got elected. Correct. Right? Well, so, before he took over. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, and... So it was that during that time, Sheriff Anderson was still in charge of IP, IMPD. And thank God he was, because he was a good leader for this. He was probably the leader we needed at the time. Because he came out after these, after these uh, murders. And by the way, the names are Gina Hunt and Andrea Yarl, who were both 24. And then there was 23-month-old Jordan Hunt and five-month-old Charlie Day, Day Yarl. And the four of them were found gunned down in this house on Hobie, Hobie Street. So Sheriff Anderson comes out um, and has a press conference at the scene where he tells, he vows that we're going to get the killers. And he says, we're going to, he says, we're going to hunt you down like dogs. Then he says, we're not going to stop until we find you, put you in a cage where you belong. There's a special place in hell for you. And we're going to see that you get there. So this is a, an elected sheriff saying really what the city needed to hear and what so many politicians today are afraid to do, but take a stand. And at the time he was, it was really refreshing to hear a public official in law enforcement express the kind of outrage everybody was feeling at the time. And, and it worked by the way, it worked because it rattled the guys who were involved in this so much that 
the next day or, you know, everybody in town was trying to get information on this story. And there was no, it was at a time when the cops were just not telling us anything. So we had no details of what happened. We just knew, uh, we knew the names and we knew that they had been shot to death. And that was it, nothing else. So every media in town is trying to get, uh, you know, something on this story. But all we can report is the same stuff that is still under investigation. And I'm working the night desk and my phone rings. And it's, it's a man who tells me that his brother was there and his brother is terrified. And his brother wants to turn himself in, but he doesn't want to turn himself in here in Indianapolis because he's afraid they're going to hunt him down like dogs and put him in hell, put him in a special place in hell. So he's, he's with his sister and they're driving to Ohio where he plans to turn himself in. And so, you know, I get, the man gives me his sister's cell phone number. I call her, she puts uh, a man named Jasper Frazier on the phone. And Jasper tells me, and I'll never forget this either. He tells me, I ain't killed them kids, man. The people that killed the kids, they was gonna kill me. I, uh, I mean, you know, you don't get that kind of interview very often as a reporter. Um, so yeah, that was, that was quite the interview. I, uh, I took my notes. I, we had a huge story the next day. The police chief at the time um, begged us not to run it, but it's not the kind of thing that we would hold. We didn't, at this point, we didn't think there'd be any way that it would ruin the case because after all, this man was turning himself in. And <laughs> so we, we ran the story. The headline was that I ain't, I ain't kill them kids was the headline on that front page. And, you know, it was one of, one of the many big scoops I had, maybe the biggest, maybe the biggest I'll ever have because uh, that was one hell of a story. We have reached the point of the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask Vic the same five questions we ask of everyone. And I guess I should mention too that, as I recall, Frank Anderson was in the Marine Corps, was he not? Okay, I don't know. I think he was. I, I think he okay. was. We'd, lo we'd love to have Frank Anderson on the podcast. Uh, let me ask you a question before the five questions begins. And that, were you heartened as a Chicago uh, fella when uh, our friend John Effin Tui came to the Indianapolis Star to uh, enlighten us and make us all feel better? He's he's one of my favorite reporters of all time. So fun to work with John. Yeah, but you know, the problem with Tui is he's a Sox fan and I'm a Cubs fan. So, you know, I'm a North Sider, he's a South Sider. So there's, a, yeah, we're a little more refined and cultured on the North Side. <laughs> I only referred to John uh, by that um, nickname because that's what Matt Tully told me his, his name was around the uh, newsroom, which I thought. Oh, we, <laughs> well, because <'cause> really, <laughs> That's his favorite word. This is his favorite word. If you sit next to Tui, you're going to hear that word multiple times. Usually in the same sentence. <laughs> okay, Vic. With Vic Reichert, uh, longtime journalist and Marine Corps veteran. First question, what was your first job? Oh, um, I worked at the White Hen Pantry when I was in high school in Chicago. It was a 
you know, like a 7-Eleven type convenience store. And I was, uh, I did it all. Cash register, swept, stocked, that sort of thing. What was your first concert? Let's see. All right. First one I went to on my own, right? That I didn't go with my mom right. or something like that would have been um, Motley Crue. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, Motley Crue. And I think, man, okay, I, I'm kind of remembering who opened them up. I can't remember the act. It was, they sang Balls to the Wall. Who sang Balls to the Wall? There was a big headbanger band. Vic, like, Back a, in the 80s. like a good reporter, is furiously doing research as he answers these questions. I am. I'm going to look up. I've got to find the name of that band. Except, yeah, except opened up for Motley Crue. It was great. It was a, it was a good concert. Number three, if you could recommend any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? Okay. Um, let's see. I, any book at all, right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not recommend like, I'm, I'm going to go away from things like the Bible and, you know, the Constitution or whatever, you know, but... I'm a big fan of Neil Gaiman. So America, look, you want one book. I love books, man. I read a lot of books for, for journalism. And if you want to know about crime, I'd say ghetto side, which is uh, about um, it. It was by, I want to say a Washington post reporter who, um, who followed embedded with homicide detectives in LA and uh, covered crime really from the inside. You know, she might have been an L.A. Times reporter. Anyway, uh, the ghetto side would be one to read if you want to learn more about crime and the problems of crime. Um, if you want to just, you know, escapism, get away, read some really great books. Uh, Neil Gaiman's American Gods is one of my favorite. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Hmm. All right. Any event in history, I would say uh, the signing of the Declaration of Independence. That's been a pretty popular one. Good choice. Has it? Okay. A last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? Uh, boy. Um, you know what? I think I would choose Bruce Springsteen. Hey, that's not a bad choice at all. You answered my questions better than I ever answered any of your questions. That's for sure. <laughs> I got you, some experience. <laughs> you have been listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Vic Reichert, Belgian, Marine Corps veteran, and one of the best journalists with whom I've ever had the pleasure of working. Thank you, Vic, for coming on today. Hey, thank you, Robert. It's really good seeing you again, sir. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. 
If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.